0: I'm going to be talking about nanomaterials. And the reason I'm very clear about wanting to talk to you about nanomaterials is because, in a sense, when you look at the whole of Industry 4.0, the future of automation, many, many things that are coming our way, artificial intelligence, synthetic biology, right at the core, there's something called nano, nanotechnology, nanomaterials. And what I want to explore with you tonight... Is a kind of balance between what's actually happening in nature and what we're engineering ourselves. And put to you a very live discussion should we have a social debate about how nanomaterials are going to be used in society, perhaps to do good, but also, as I'll explain, perhaps to cross some of the borders of what we think is potentially too risky. So there's a kind of an an urgency now about nanoengineering. And that's what I want to really convey tonight. So you may have seen some of these. I mean, they look like science fiction, but I can tell you they're already happening. Nanobots have this enormous potential and are already working for us. They can deliver drugs. They can actually target cancer cells with particular drugs. They can help improve resource efficiency, they can sense the environment, and they can help clean up pollution. So, for example, we can see the one on the top right-hand side can actually go into your body and swim with a couple of flagella and deliver itself to a particular part of your body where it can then put drugs in place. So all of these things are actually happening today. People are experimenting, but these are more the mechanical devices working at a nano size, but still and nevertheless, they're delivering also nanomaterials. And I'll I'll come a little bit more to that. The thing is, we've got so many things in development, whether they fly or go in your bodies or whether they're out in the environment, they're all in a way affecting us. So one of the things that we need to be really clear about, and I'll I'll come back to this again in some of my other lectures, is the idea that it is not the same when we say no evidence of harm. It's not the same as evidence of no harm. They're very, very different in a way. So when we're thinking about the testing that is done in laboratories and we're thinking about what people are really looking at, the impacts of nanomaterials, in the environment, in human health. What we're really looking for is evidence of no harm as opposed to no evidence of harm. So human beings have been long, long fascinated with the small world. And if you think about yourself as a child, and it's very important in early childhood development, that idea of taking miniaturised worlds and working through a kind of small world scenario There's something about the way we conceive of that as children. And in fact, there's a whole genre of of children's literature. Some of you, I'm sure, will have read The Borrowers. The idea of... It's a kind of fantasy novel which Mary Norton put out in the 50s and the idea of a, a family of tiny people who borrow from the family upstairs to create an English house down below. But I think one of the most popular and most famous, of course, is that of Lewis Carroll, from a story he was telling to a group of girls in a boat on a boat trip um, about Alice in Wonderland and I'm going to read you just a short piece about when Alice herself at the very beginning enters into this world. Alice was beginning to get very tired of sitting by her sister on the bank and having nothing to do when suddenly a white rabbit with pink eyes ran close by her Alice started to her feet, and burning with curiosity, she ran across the field after it. Unfortunately, it was just in time to see it pop down a large rabbit hole. In another moment, down went Alice. Thump, thump. Down she came upon a heap of sticks and dry leaves, and the fall was over. She found herself in a long, low hall. Suddenly, she came upon a three-legged table, all made of solid glass, There was nothing on it except a tiny golden key. She came upon a low curtain, and behind it was a little door about 15 inches high. Alice opened the door, looked along the passage, and saw the loveliest garden. But she couldn't even get her head through the doorway. She went back to the table. This time, she found a little bottle on it. And round the neck of the bottle was a paper label with the word, Drink Me. Well, it was all very well to say, drink me, said Alice to herself, the wise Alice. She was not going to do that in a hurry. No, I'll look first, she said, and see whether it's marked poison or not. For she'd never forgotten that if you drink too much from a bottle marked poison, it almost certainly to disagree with you sooner or later. However, the bottle was not marked poison, so Alice very soon finished it off. And so it was indeed. She was now only 10 inches high, I must be shutting like a telescope. And her face brightened up at the thought that she was now the right size for going through the door into that lovely garden. Well, as you know, Alice's journey into a miniature world was filled with crazy and wildly improbable animals, none more so than the Mad Hatter's Tea Party, attended by the March Hare and the Hatter. Now, the most amazing artist called Willard Wigan. I don't know if any of you have seen his work. It's quite extraordinary. He makes the world's smallest handmade sculptures. And he captured the tea party with the eye of a needle using a diamond cutter and tweezers made from his eyelashes. And he literally stops breathing. He takes his pulse rate down. He works at night because the rumbling of the cars in the road makes things actually vibrate and as he slowly puts these together he goes into a kind of meditative trance. Now, unfortunately, just as he was about to finish this particular one, he breathed, and he inhaled Alice. That was rather... So he had to start all over again but he actually did do it again and I'm absolutely delighted. This is an amazing artist and you should go and look into his life because he's had quite some troubles but he produces these... Very, very beautiful small works of art. But he said something really interesting. He said that when you work at this scale, things change because in a sense you're working with the molecules themselves. And that's what he's feeling as he's working on his microscope with his heart rate very low, touching things with an eyelash. So what does nanoscale mean? Well, for those of you who are wanting to know the facts and figures, it's a billionth of a metre, or a millionth of a a millimetre. And to give you some idea of what we're talking about, on the left-hand side, we're going to come back to them, carbon nanotubes, very important in this discussion about nanomaterials. But they're essentially 100,000 smaller than a strand of hair. So we're talking very, very much at the atomic level, manipulating things at that level. Now, what's interesting is that when you start to work at this scale fluctuations actually in the properties of individual particles begin to affect the behavior of the whole material of the whole system itself these are called quantum effects and they become more and more apparent so that it's very important how thick the material is how wide it is because these low dimensions have this tremendous effect on what's called the quantized sites uh, states and actually the properties now above that the bulk properties, the things that you would normally worry about, which atoms are present, how are they bonded, what kind of ratios. So we're going to go below that and we're going to start worrying about all those small vibrations and actually how particles are interacting with each other. Now nanoparticles, nanomaterials are not a new thing. In fact, they're in all our life forms, in ants, In insects, in bacteria, going back to things 500 million years old. And the properties and structures that they give animals are amazing. They're dazzling in their diversity. So let me just take one category. Long before uh, engineers even thought about photonics, so using microscopic devices that manipulate light for electronics, nature had developed animals that did things with light, that was smaller and more complex than anything we have been able to manufacture. So if we take, for example, on the left-hand side, these beautiful butterfly wings, they're they're very typical of iridescent uh, butterflies. We've got beetles, we've got fish scales. And one of the things that you discover is that you can do certain things to them. And I'll explain why. But if you imagine, these are only made through nanoscopic pillars, for example, of sugars, and of proteins like keratin. And it's the width of the slits between these pillars that actually manipulates light. So these are structural colours. They're not pigments, they're structural colours. Now why is that important? Because as we know, pigments, they can bleach out with time. But structural colours don't. They actually remain stable for long, long periods of time. And they can also be changed So when we look at the colours of the wings on the left hand side what you see is small differences but nevertheless significant when you consider when they're out in the wild between the larvae which are wild from these butterflies and the ones where they've been cooled. And you begin to see differences between the ordinary temperature and those that have been cooled. So temperature is important, the density of air in between these little pillars is very important And you can see the kind of structures that we're talking about. So these respond to physical signals. In fact, if you put them in water, you can also tell if there's a structural colour there as opposed to a pigment because they change the vibrancy of the colour. And they're very important for sexual communication. Now, there's a more famous butterfly. I suspect many of you will have seen this before. These ultra-thin layers of the slit panels, they can actually reverse the light. So in this Morpho, a very famous uh, South American butterfly, what you see is that it can actually transmit the colour for up to half a mile visibility. These are amazing butterflies. They're intensely coloured, but it comes from this very small scaffolding, multiple, multiple scales that are physical in their property. And what they can do is they can actually change the direction of light. They can even reverse the direction and the travel of light itself. So we see it in beetles, we see it in butterflies. It's a very, very sophisticated kind of complexity. And what these can do in five micrometers takes man 25 times thicker to deliver the same thing. But just imagine if we're able to use that knowledge to create pigments and dyes. One of the most polluting uh, industries in the world is the dye industry. So, if we were able to replace the pigments that we use in the, in the covers of our seats, in our clothes, with these kinds of structural pigments, uh, structural colours, then in fact we would be not only improving the environment, but we'd actually be creating something very, very um, important in terms of non toxic compounds. Nature's done it extremely efficiently, and what we see is in fact many, many manifestations of this. So there's a wonderful lady at Cambridge, Silvia Vignolini, and she asked the fundamental question of how is it, what are these polymers and what can we use to emulate them? And so she's been looking at cellulose, one of the most pervasive polymers that we have, and she's been looking at how plants use these nanostructures to create all the different colours and, and, and different ideas. And she got the idea because she was working at Q. And she found a berry. as an African plant, Polya condensata. And the berry was still deep iridescent blue, even though the plant had been dead for 150 years. The leaves, of course, had faded away. They were green, but they'd all faded away. But the berry was this deep, deep blue. So she asked the question, you know, how is this possible? How can it still be bright? Now, when she took that material into the lab, and she looked at it with a scanning electron microscope, she found these beautiful kind of helical structures. They were sort of twisting to the right and to the left, and they circularly polarise light. But these are, so they kind of give a pointillist effect. And this is actually what's at the core of that kind of structural colour. Then she wondered whether you could find it anywhere else. And in fact, sure enough, when she starts to look In many other places, she finds the same thing. So we have, in a way, an ideal format, a base material, cellulose. It comes in the form of food and agricultural waste. And we could use that to actually create sustainable pigments and non-toxic pigments for all of the things that we require. It's not straightforward. It's yet to be done. But this is something that lies ahead of the nanotechnologist's. Now, scientists at the Toyota Research Laboratory had a similar idea. They were working in the US and Japan. They've been working for 15 years to try and create this iridescent blue that you see in that beautiful beetle and also in the morpho's butterfly wings. And they asked the question, well, what is it? Is the layered structure? Yes. It's the multiple uh, pieces, the pigment flakes, in a sense. Can we actually reproduce that? And what they found, it was like a fir tree. So what they tried to do was they tried to experiment with materials. And they first of all did it with something called titanium oxide and hafnium oxide. And then they required 31 layers. So they weren't very happy with that. And then they tried another one where they added aluminium. And with that, they found that they could reduce it to seven. So once they'd made the new pigment, they took another year to see whether they could make it into a paint, a water-based paint. And finally, they got to the point where they had what they wanted. But just to tell you, nature, in the sense of this lovely, beautiful beetle, produces that year on year, day on day, week on week. It actually takes Toyota uh, eight months to produce 300 billion pigment flakes for 300 vehicles. So it takes quite a long time. All right. So the idea, of course, is to speed this up. Nevertheless, the complexity of what they've been able to achieve is quite extraordinary. And with that, we've got other paint manufacturers. We've got Azo, um, AXO, I always say that wrong, Nobel, and the Natural History Museum here in London, working on animals and plants, looking at those vivid white colours and the blues, trying to understand how to get those colours into the paint pot. That's kind of led to another whole generation of materials that are... Potentially going to change in a way our carbon dioxide footprint. Because it also is clear that if you can change the travel, the direction of the travel of light, you can do a great deal in terms of heating when it comes to windows. And so it's been very clear that in the US, one of the one of the leading laboratories, the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in California, has been able to create a kind of polymer coating which goes onto windows that allows the uh, infrared energy to be reflected back. It allows the visible light to pass through, so you don't need air conditioning. And what they've estimated, with this very, very simple polymer, not only would they cut energy bills, but also carbon dioxide emissions, and their estimate is that for the US alone, if they were able to cover the windows of pretty much every building, they would reduce it by 24 billion kilos per year, That's the equivalent of taking 5 million cars off the road with a simple polymer on windows. So you see nanomaterials can make a phenomenal difference. They can change in a way many of the things where we have to retrofit, the way we're going forward, um, and, and really they can change even everyday life. And another example of that is in adhesives. Now geckos are just wonderful animals. As you probably know, they scamper about, they stick on the walls, and they can just walk like this and fall off. And there is not one single piece of chemistry, as such, adhering them to the walls. It's physical. However, it's an interesting kind of physicality because it's about these setae and spatulae. So they're, they're a little kind of grips, they're like bristles, and they're on these, they're sort of branched nanoscopic piece, um, bristles, which are on the spatulae. They measure about 200 nanometers in length. And several thousands of these are attached to the setae, And that's what keeps a gecko kind of stuck to the walls. They're made from keratin, so in a way it's something that we can work with. Now, the interesting thing about gecko feet is that they're self-cleaning, they don't mat, and they detach by default. So in the future we could imagine a whole range of things, glues, Screws, rivets, all of them could be made from this single price process by using keratin in these particular configurations. But then there's another whole range of what I call products which use nanoadhesives. And these are even more elaborate combinations of ways in which different chemicals have been put together. And there's a, an everlasting range of them. These are just three that I picked out. So you have to use your intelligence here because when you go to the store and you see something called nano-adhesive, the question is, what is it? Is it something to do with the chemistry? Is it something to do with the physicality? You know, what is it? And of course, these are all secrets they're all hidden behind the label and you can't really find out. But it's worth, and I'll talk a bit in a moment, it's really worth going around a supermarket and just count how many times you can read the word nano on a product and it doesn't really tell you what it is. So we will come to that. Now, so nano is appearing everywhere. There are some things which are real, for which we understand there's research and there's evidence. There's something going on at a nano scale. And there are other things that we're really not too sure about. And this is really about labelling. And it's about the regulation of that labelling that tells us that we're on fairly thin ice. So in theory... In principle, we can make materials that are very, very strong, um, that can do many things that we're interested in. The strongest form of any solid is usually a single crystal, so like diamonds, for example. Um, Steel rods, aircraft bodies, car panels, those are not single crystalline, but they're usually polycrystalline. Uh, The problem is, with many of them, that as you increase the grain size, uh, you, you can't really manage the weight. Now what does nature do? Well nature does something really different. It actually moves into a sort of nanostructured porous structure called a mesocrystal. So one of the strongest materials outside of the carbon world is nacre, um, mother of pearl. It's absolutely beautiful and many scientists really were very curious as to why it was possible for, for shells to essentially be made out of aragonite. And it puzzled, because lacry, the mother of pearl, is about 3,000 times more break-resistant than the chemical it's made up of, which is called aragonite. So the question is, how? What is is it? What is it that's making it so, so much more uh, pressure-resistant? Because these are found at great depths. Now, about uh, some time ago, um, a, a scientist called Gilbert he started looking at them using synchrotron radiation. And what he found was really interesting. He found, in fact, that they're made of bricks, little bricks with organic mortar between them. And that's what actually holds these mini kind of mineral crystal bricks together. And it's the columns of them that are kind of like a zip. And what he's been able to do is actually make material that is very, very similar. Now you can see it on the right-hand side, obviously not at the nanoscale, which is actually similar to the structure that's found in, in the natural forms of Mother of Pearl. So these are really quite phenomenal materials. Another example of nano nature is something called magnetotactic bacteria. These are interesting because the bacteria that have them can sense magnetic fields, even the Earth's magnetism. So using small trains, chains of nanocrystals, and these are called magnetosomes, But they can actually be so accurate, they're almost like foldable compass needles. But what they also do is they hold the memory of direction. So not only can they direct, but they can also hold the memory. We don't understand really why, but they can retain information. So there are many things in terms of the skills that nature has in creating kinds of nanomaterials, which we have yet to really bring into the laboratory But if we could learn how to mimic some of these structures, then, of course, we could produce magnetically sensitive um, atomic instruments. We could do many, many things. So let's enter the engineered world. That's nature doing amazing things, huge diversity, sort of dazzling diversity. So along comes the engineered world. And in 2016, the Nobel Prize was actually awarded to three people, Jean-Pierre Sauvage... Fraser Stoddart and Bernard Feringa, and what they worked on was synthesizing a little what we called a four nanometer long car so they had little wheels and everything and the idea was that they they, they got this for their work on learning how to work at this level how to design things but what I think no one really could believe was how nanomaterials just took off in the marketplace so I suspect that At least one of these products you will be familiar with. I'm hoping that you will have seen them Um, from yogurts to toothpaste, even Oreos. They're not immune to nano. Um, Your wonderful, you know, Burt's Bees, but in the sunscreen, clothes, your computer, adhesives and so on. So these nanomaterials are everywhere. Why are they in there? Well, sometimes they're for anti-caking. In other words, they're there as a kind of way to make sure that the solution, the material, retains the properties it's supposed to have, like in the case of the uh, the, um, adhesive. Sometimes they're there for colour, for reflectivity, and we'll come to that. But in principle, you can go into any supermarket and you should be able to find products like these now the question is does it actually say it on the label nine times out of ten it doesn't tell you it'll say it's got titanium oxide in it but it won't tell you it's the nano form however if you go and check and you see how it's made you'll find that all of these ones and many others have a nano form of titanium oxide so here again is our problem because these 1,300 or so commercial products that are already including not just these, but also medical equipment, uh, textiles, fuel additives, there's a whole range of things that include uh, nanomaterials, are not genuinely labelled in a way which you should be able to find uh, very easily. They contain carbon in its nano forms, silver in its nano forms, and yet they have huge potential to help our lives. So we're kind of torn here because one of the the really challenging parts for us is that when you take a material like silver, silver is heavily regulated. It's known to have a number of properties. But in the normal world of heavy metals and so on, it has a whole bunch of regulations as to how it can be used. When you nanoise it, in other words, you put it into a different physical form, Remember what I said at the very beginning? It takes on a whole other range of properties, And those other properties aren't necessarily covered in the same way as you would deal with a heavy metal, for example. So it's very, very different. So here we have a challenge. We have well-understood elements which are dealt with through traditional regulations, labeling and so forth. And then you nanoize it, you turn it into tiny, tiny, tiny parts has completely different properties and so really what you need is a different set of regulation for that. Nanoization is also changing the way that we manufacture things. So there's a process called electrospinning. Uh, It's fascinating to see. It means that you can produce things like biopolymer uh, nanofibrous smart fabrics like the one on the left hand side at a scale that it's impossible to produce using conventional fiber spinning. So electrospinning technology, it uses a high voltage with a polymer solution, and what it does is it produces materials that are 100 times thinner than hair, very strong, tough, flexible, and because of their carbon content, they can also be conductive. So for example, using the smart fabrics, you can make wearable technologies. That's where this idea of having your, you know, your suit jacket, it can read your heart rate, it can tell you how you are, it can tell you all sorts of things about the day, it can, it can even sort of start to keep track of what's happening around you. Uh, it can probably receive your mail if you really wanted it to. So there's many, many things that it can do. In fact, these nanofibers have become so pervasive that they're now being used in many places So we've got them used in environmental protection to clean up water. We've got them in purification systems, creating a filter. We've got them in agriculture, using as a shade cloth to stop pests and insects coming into the plants. You have them in medicine. You'll often see uh, in some of the surgeries in the surgical areas, silver, nano-silver bandages, because they've got high antibacterial properties. You've got all kinds of things, plasters and so forth. But they can also be used to create cell um, cultures. So you can create stem cells, you can create bone cells, you can do many things. You can even uh, transplant human skin using it. And in the clothing industry, as I said, it's beginning to take off. So you can have garment sensors, and those are already there, but you can also create emergency situations where you can put a clothing you can put clothing on someone who's been badly injured, and actually within that, as some of the military are doing already, it has literally everything embedded inside the garment. In fact, it's been going on for a very long time because very recently people have been looking again at the swords of Damascus, the Damascus steel. This is known as the sharpest and the strongest material. And it turns out that in the process of making the swords in this traditional way, What's happened is that as you, you forge and you anneal and you turn, you're actually getting down to the point where you've created carbon nanotubes. And so the recent evidence is that these swords, which are very famous and incredibly valuable and sharp and so on, have huge strength, are actually made of carbon nanotubes. And what we know about carbon nanotubes is that these are this is some of the strongest material that we have on planet Earth. So it's got suppleness, it's got strength. These are all kinds of things at the nanoscale, which are um, manifestations of getting down to that quantum level, the quantum effects as the material gets smaller. Now, nano has many other properties. And what we see is that when you, as I say, render render an element into its nano size, then you have all different kinds of properties. So if you take gold then it's actually what's called diamagnetic. It, does, it doesn't respond to a magnetic field. It responds very weakly. But if you nanoize it, it has very unusual magnetic properties. And in the same way with titanium and zinc, and I'm going to stay with them for a little while because they have extremely important properties. If you have titanium oxide, you can actually, quote, tune it by using silver nanoparticles. So you can tune it to particular spectral frequencies. And similarly, you can actually here use titanium dioxide nanotubes doped with silver particles, and make very, very good antibiotic, uh, mat- uh, antibiotic preparations. So it's this duality, it's the complexity of bringing two materials together that also allows nanomaterials to have phenomenal impacts. Now, the the whole range of personal care products is often this combination. Um, But nanodiamonds, for example, nanodiamonds can actually penetrate the blood-brain barrier. And they can get through and they can actually allow targeted delivery of specific drugs, of remedies. Um, They can even go directly to cancerous tumours. So in a sense, well-directed and well-used nanomaterials and nanotechnology is, in a sense, the next frontier of where we can see great strides in helping solve many problems. Um, nanodiamonds are used in, in many other places. They can be used for uh, signalling. They can be used, in a sense, to tell us how our heart is doing, how our brain is functioning. So there are many reasons why we might want to use that. And finally, you know, that we can even turn enzymes into nanoenzymes. So nanomaterials can go pretty much everywhere. But the but the sort of the crowning one, which everyone talks about, of course, is carbon. So carbon nanomaterials are really interesting because they come in all different shapes and sizes. For example, um, they come sometimes as graphene, which is like a, a sheet. And if you roll that up, you get a single atom-sized uh, tube called a carbon nanotube. Isaac Asimov actually talked about this when he was thinking about his stairway up into space he he in a sense anticipated what this was what this was uh, talking about so a carbon nanotube is one atom thick it's a one atom thick layer of carbon rolled up into this cylinder it actually is 117 times stronger than steel of the same diameter it's a phenomenal material it's a better conductor than copper it's got a high, higher thermal conductivity than diamonds um, it, it's just a tremendous material it's why everyone gets extremely excited about it at the same time the buckyball um, Harry Croto, who uh, unfortunately has died he, he won a Nobel Prize was working on this named after Buckminster Fuller famous for his sort of geodesic uh, domes again has enormous properties and great interest into how it can be manipulated so carbon, nan- uh, carbon nanotubes are used in lithium batteries. You have them in your computers. Um, they're used for lightweight turbine blades, for boat hulls. They're used all over the place, uh, biosensors, data cables, medical devices, and so on. So there are enormous numbers of applications for carbon nanotubes. Now, they're very difficult to manufacture in great lengths. And one of the things that um, I find very interesting is that there is some evidence that in, out in nature there is a natural form of these carbon nanotubes. So let's let's wait to see if uh, what we we found in Africa, in one of the lakes near to me, really is going to generate that. But suffice to say that right now, commercial production is already at thousands, several thousands of tonnes per year. So it's being manufactured and it's being used. I take a, a large breath because it all sounds extremely positive. Um, we can do things, for example, with these carbon nanotubes as absorb carbon dioxide. So we could use these in response to climate change. We can use them to absorb carbon dioxide. Um, we can use them in plasmonics and so on. And nanomaterials are growing and growing and growing. the The, the global market is somewhere in the region of above twenty percent per annual per year growth. It's going to be above 50 $50 billion by 2022. So in four or five years, it's already a substantial part of the manufacturing side of society. So a lot of excitement. Everybody's very interested. They can be used for many things. The real question is, what do we know about them? What do we really know about them when it comes to ourselves, our health, and the environment? And I want to bring you to a lady called Alice. This is my second Alice. So nano-sized particles can enter the body. They can enter through inhalation. They can enter through ingestion, through the skin. Um, through, they, they can come essentially through many ways. They can get into your lungs. They can cause inflammation. Now, all of these kinds of symptoms are very similar to what happened with asbestos. So at this point, we have to say, well, what did we learn? What did we learn from asbestos? Carbon nanotubes and carbon nanofibers, they have been shown already to cause damage to skin, eyes, lungs and brain tissue, and they can accumulate in the body. They've got very similar characteristics to asbestos. They've got needle-like shape, they're biopersistent, they can pierce through lung tissues and other kinds of tissues. Now, they don't do what asbestos does chemically, but they can cause inflammation. And in fact, let's just think about when asbestos was first identified as a problem. There was a lady called Lucy Dean. She was the first woman inspector of factories in 1898. And she said, and I'll quote her, she noted that asbestos work was a demonstrated danger to the health of workers because of ascertained cases of injury to bronchial tubes and lungs medically attributed to the employment of the sufferer. In other words, working in an asbestos factory. Now, I don't know if any of you remember, but in 1982, there was a television documentary about Alice. It was called The Fight for Life, and this lady, Alice Jefferson, she's a 47-year-old lady, and she contracted mesothelioma. She, this is a, fa- a fatal form of cancer. She'd worked for just a few months at a local asbestos plant in the UK. And the story, when this went out, when there was a documentary, it just turned public opinion immediately onto, we need to do something about this. Literally, within a few months... There was a voluntary labelling scheme. Pressure was building. Uh, Scientific evidence started to come in. Uh, There was literally an epidemic of mesothelioma because of all the past exposure to asbestos. It still took until 1999, so 101 years, to get actual banning of it. But nevertheless, the evidence was there. It had begun to accumulate in people. And thousands of people have died from asbestosis or or sort of related cancers. Now today we still have efforts on the risks of exposure to asbestos. We have care taken when buildings are disassembled or when there are actually uh, renovation work going on. And in fact, as you know, you have to have have licences to do work on buildings which have got asbestos in them. But the question is, what lessons did we learn from asbestos? What did we learn? Well, we learned it took 101 years to get some legislation in place. Do we have to go through again a conversation about the deadly dangers of things? Do we have to think about exposures in this very basic sense? And so we know that everyone has to be aware and be vigilant and paying attention. But in a sense, what we have and what we need to activate is a very, very clear sense of what nanomaterials can do and what they might do and what we don't know. And so we come back to the precautionary principle. Many advocates of the precautionary principle understand how it should work, which is it doesn't stop you doing things, it actually makes you go and investigate further. Now, if we know today that carbon nanotubes and maybe other materials, nanomaterials, have persistent effects, biopersistence. We know that they could have significant consequences for all kinds of organisms, for food chains, for ecosystems. We know for a fact that some of them, through oral and dermal and pulmonary exposure, can cause inflammation and fibrosis, can disrupt metabolism, organs functions, maybe even DNA damage and potentially genetic instability. Um, what are we to do? Well, we should be invoking the precautionary principle. We should say we need more evidence. And the problem is that industry and the speed of industrial development, the enthusiasm that we can fix this and we can do that and this is fantastic, is actually outstripping the pace of both research on the impacts as opposed to what you can do with it, as well as the, as well as the regulatory development. So in a sense, we don't have long-term monitoring we're just getting going. And the challenge is the very things that you potentially need to monitor nanomaterials, the sensors, these can sense very, very, very low concentrations of pollutants. But what they can't do yet is sense themselves. So we're, we're, at, a, we're at a concentration and we're at a scale where we don't even really have the ability to monitor these materials out in the wild in our own bodies. So we know, for example, that if you were to take nano-silver um, and you were to put it in clothing, well, obviously, if you wash it a lot, you're going to release it into the water. If you put titanium dioxide nanoparticles into materials, in paint, in buildings, these are gradually going to aerosolize and be released into the environment. If you take carbon nanotubes, they're going to become airborne because they're in our batteries they're in your mobile phones they're in your computers they're in pretty much everything that you've got so the heat of your the heat of your computer the heat of your telephone is enough to actually make them start to leach into the environment into the air so I don't want to alarm you but I do want to alarm you actually it's actually what I want to do because we just simply don't have enough studies to tell you with all certainty that these are materials that can be used pervasively and yet we are using them pervasively. We have concentrations potentially in atmosphere, in soil, in water that we really don't know about and probably in yourself. So last year, the European Chemicals Agency classified titanium oxide. Now, titanium oxide, I've mentioned it a few times, it's an extremely important player in the world of nanomaterials and they announced that it is a potential carcinogen if inhaled. Now, I happen to have run a European Environment—I ran the European Environment Agency—and so I, I know my colleagues really well in the European agencies. And to get to the point where you go from possibly, likely to where you actually classify it as being a potential carcinogen takes a lot of effort and evidence and work. You do not do these things lightly because it has tremendous impacts on industry. So for Etcher, as it's known, to make that statement is a wake-up call. And in a way, it's led to, fortunately, some industries saying, oh, actually, this is is really important. So the cosmetics industry, as one, has really begun to pay attention. And this is important. So, for example, L'Oreal, working with Silvia Vignoli's group, are now absolutely looking like lasers, trying to find other materials to remove titanium oxide, which is in your lipsticks, in your hair colouring, it's in many things that ladies use for cosmetics. So they're trying to find alternatives. Because titanium oxide creates that reflectivity that gives you that lustre in the morning makes you look beautiful and like you've just got out of some refreshing spa yes well you haven't you've just got titanium oxide on you so a little bit like a little little bit like elizabeth I when she used to put stuff on her skin um so you know that there's that part of it then there's the part as i mentioned about the nano the nanoization the nano sizing So several years ago, um, the washing machine manufacturers realised that silver was a brilliant, a brilliant thing to use in terms of its antibiotic properties and its cleansing properties. So they thought, well, we'll put it in washing machines. We'll put it in the filter. That's the place where it should be. We'll nanoise it so the surface area is even more, so we don't have to use so much. Fortunately, the Swedish government, the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, were one of the first to cotton on to the idea that nanoisation created different attributes than if you had a solid block. But they were the ones that did the first calculation that said, you've got as much silver in this washing machine as would be prohibitive under normal use of a heavy metal. So they banned it. Now, it didn't happen everywhere, but it was certainly, again, um, an item of discussion amongst manufacturers. So exposure to nanoparticles, it causes a whole range of stresses, can create genomic changes, you name it. It can even, and this relates to my lecture last time, it can even accelerate the development of antimicrobial resistance in genes. So we know that silicon, silver, titanium dioxide, these can all cause different kinds of inflammation. So studying these features is extremely important. And this is what the US EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, has been doing. They've been looking at the composition, the stability, and they're really committed to determining which nanomaterials compose a higher probability of risk and those which can kind of be left to go through into manufacturing. And the volume on the left, which I would certainly commend you to take a look at, was a volume that looked at a whole range of issues, including nano, which said again and again... We wait too long. For example, in Mercury, we waited 50 years to have the Mercury Convention, even though the science was well understood. The Minamata effect was well understood 50 years ago. And so here we are on the brink of a massive revolution, a chemical revolution with nanomaterials. Are we just going to stand by and wait? No, we should use the precautionary principle, we should push forward and actually demand as consumers to have the evidence that tells us which of these are safe and which are not, which are likely to expose us and what are the risks. Can we have knowledge about the calculable risks? So in the workplace, which is usually the first place you come across these, we are beginning to see some movement um, we can see that some of the, particularly in the American side, some of the funded scientists there are looking at things like cadmium selenide. What they find is that if you put that on the skin, because it's nanoise, if you put it on the skin and the skin has been shaved, you can then find cadmium elevated levels in the lymph nodes. but if the if the mouse is not shaved, it doesn't enter. So there's all kinds of conditions for every single chemical. There's a vast array of experiments that have to be done to look at the absorptive capacity of these nanomaterials. So I'm going to to sort of end on that, because nanosized materials, they offer huge potential for delivering drugs, for doing a whole range of things inside our bodies. But they do interact with healthy cells, no doubt about it. So if you've got, for example, there's one study which looks at two lines of cancer cells and even the shape of the rod of the nanosized particles matters. In one case, the cancer cells were attacked and in the other, they weren't. So size matters, shape matters, as well as volume. We could have the most effective drug delivery or we could end up making the situation worse for someone who's already got Uh, cancer we have got some things coming along we've got guidelines we've got ISO um, we've got ISO guidelines and so forth but at the end of the day what we would say is that and this is very important I think for for the world is that organization after organization around the world looking at occupational safety and health have said that lung inflammation granulomas fibrosis in animals and people, is significant enough to warrant action to restrict exposure to various nanomaterials. Are they regulated? Not really. Um, because of the breadth of what's going on, it's very clear that we don't always have the capacity to have the regulations. What we see in Europe, is very encouraging. We have something called REACH, which is this um, uh, quite heavy-handed process of registration and evaluation of of different authentication and restriction of chemicals. And what REACH does is take um, nanomaterials in cosmetics. So it's focusing on cosmetics. The US uh, Food and Drug Administration, they've gone wider. They've gone to food, cosmetics, drugs, devices, and veterinary products, And what they're saying is nanomaterials are chemical substances, and as such, they're controlled under the Toxic Substance Act. So they've gone one step further. They've classified them. We haven't done that. We could do that. But Congress, certainly in the US, is still working on that basis. So they see that their role is to protect the public against unreasonable risks of injuries and deaths associated with consumer products. So now that nano has has been put in chemical substances and these are now literally controlled substances, then there's a far, far more rigorous level of inquiry. (coughs) The question is, do we want to live in the slipstream or do we actually want to be in the front line of finding out for ourselves? So let me finish with the the final idea. And it's the use of sunscreen. Um, We've been told for years, you know, go to the beach slap it on, make sure that you're covered. You know, it's harmful effects of the sun's ultraviolet rays. But you might want to take care for two reasons. So sneaking up on the inside is another set of chemicals which have kind of bypassed the regulatory process. One of them is oxybenzoin. And it, you can see it listed at the top. There's a, Well, there's a various whole, uh, variety of them. These are absolutely lethal to coral and coral reefs and to marine life. Um, It's a very common one. It's found in nearly all sunscreens. Uh, You can just literally go to your local chemist and you'll find that nearly all of them still have it. Not only does it harm corals, it harms it at a a concentration that is slightly unbelievable. Literally, a drop in six and a half Olympic swimming pools will damage a 25-kilometre stretch of coral reef. I mean, it's it's kind of mind-boggling how lethal this is. And there we are, slapping it on ourselves and entering into the water and essentially, you know, just literally contaminating. And now the Australians are absolutely convinced that most of the demise in local areas of the coral reef is because of this chemical. So what's that got to do with nanomaterials? Well, it turns out that one of the carriers, or two of the carriers, are titanium dioxide or zinc oxide. And as long as they're in a normal cream, it's the kind of white cream that you put on your skin. And that's what carries all of this. And it has reflectivity, and that's why it's used everywhere. And in fact, if you're allergic to zinc, you can use the titanium version and so on. So zinc offers better protection, but nevertheless it's in most of them. And it's a really good choice. However, people have begun to say, but I don't like having all that white all over me. What I really want is that nice spray that's very thin and you can't really see it. So it still gives me my protection, but then I don't have all those white streaks all over me. The reason I have white streaks all over you is because it's the nanoized version of it. So what you're spraying all over yourself are nanoparticles of titanium dioxide or zinc zinc oxide. Now, the problem with those two is that they also contain and, and they're also very, very um, lethal for, for corals as well. So you've got the double whammy. You've got the, benzo- the oxybenzoate and then you add nanomaterials. So fortunately, Hawaii has said no way um, the Virgin Islands, no way. Florida, no way. Mexico, no way. Australia has said 90% of the molecules must be above 100 nanometers, um, and now the EU has said non-nano means nothing bigger than 100, 100 nanometers can be in this. So when you go for your summer holiday, which or your winter holiday, um, look very carefully, because almost certainly you'll find your sunscreen has got it in. Now there's fortunately something which says non-nano, so you can buy the non-nano version now. That's beginning to come up. But it's not regulated. It's essentially done at the the pleasure, I would say, or at the whim of the industry, realising that both nano and benzoate, oxybenzoate are a bad thing. But it just tells you how very fragile our regulatory systems are. So on the one hand, we have massive potential from nanomaterials. I think you've heard about some of them. You can only imagine and speculate on some of the things that they can deliver. But at the same time, we shouldn't feel secure that we are using materials that have gone through a significant level of testing and that they're actually safe for us as consumers. So I will leave that with you. Thank you.